you're tuned in to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Powerful ideas to rock your restaurant. Here's your host, Roger Bodwin. Welcome back, everyone, to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. You know, for over 20 years, when I owned restaurants, I was a huge believer in not running a restaurant, but instead creating, building, and sustaining a powerful brand. And there's such a huge difference. And I offer that advice to, you know, my clients and other restaurants that I speak to today. So I'm really excited in this episode because we're going to be talking all about brand protection and intellectual property and what elements of your restaurant can you protect, right down to are your recipes protectable? all big issues. I'm speaking with Mr. Abe Cohn. He's a New York City attorney specializing in such things, intellectual property, trademark and brand protection, for a firm that specializes in the hospitality industry. Really excited to speak with him. We're also going to go down a couple of other legal roads that are critically important for restaurants, such as independent contractors versus employees, and what the IRS really looks for, and what that fine line is in addition to the controversial no-tipping policy that's sweeping the country. I think it started several years ago. Famous restaurateur in New York City, Danny Meyer from the Union Square Hospitality Group, instituted a no-tip policy in his restaurants. And now other operators across the country are wondering with that controversial decision Is it going to work for me or will my guests be turned off if suddenly the prices are higher, but they don't have to tip? Okay, so listen up. You're going to get good advice from Abe on all these legal matters and so much more. Stay tuned to this episode. And thanks to my friends at Square Payroll for bringing the episode to us. You know, there are a thousand details to run a restaurant and it pays to let the pros handle the critical elements of your business. When I ran restaurants, having a specialized payroll company was absolutely essential, and it gave me peace of mind. Well, thanks to Square Payroll, your restaurant can focus on taking care of business without worrying about all the fine details of payroll. With just a few clicks, you can pay W-2 employees and contractors. You can seamlessly import time data without ever adding hours manually. Yes, Square even has an app for that. They can even calculate and pay credit card tips. Square handles all payroll withholding, payments, and filing at no additional cost. Best of all, pricing is fair and flexible and scales with your business. It's just $29 per month plus $5 per month per employee. Benefits like health insurance, 401k, workers' comp, and pre-tax spending are also available. Go to square.com forward slash go forward slash rockstar and get three free months of Square Payroll. Again, get three free months of Square Payroll at square.com forward slash go forward slash rockstar. Check it out. Now, on with the episode. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Restaurant Rockstars podcast, engaging topics that help restaurants build their brands, rock their profits, and deliver amazing guest service experiences. With me today, I have Mr. Abe Cohn. He is an attorney that specializes in intellectual property as well as startup law, and he specializes in working with food industry clients. Welcome to the show today, Abe. I'm glad to have you here. Thank you very much. I'm really pleased to to be on and you know, provide with the opportunity to connect with your audience. 
Well, legal issues are very, very important in restaurants. We're going to cover lots of different topics today, but let's start it. Let's start with forms of organization. You know, there's lots of um, critical decisions that need to be made when you're starting a new restaurant, or even if uh, you have an existing restaurant and you decide to purchase the property or own the real estate and all those sorts of things. And we've all heard the horror stories about what can happen if you're a sole proprietor and you run a restaurant and then all of a sudden something bad happens. You know, you can lose all your personal assets. So clearly we don't want to recommend that anyone set up as a sole proprietorship. But, you know, LLCs seem to be hot right now Um, in different states. It it really doesn't matter. Do you suggest uh, a limited liability company over, say, a subchapter S corporation? What's your best advice, Abe? Yeah, so really it depends, but you know, before figuring out which one is right for you, the restaurant, the key thing is to just understand that what you're doing with these business entities is really two different things. The first thing is, as you noted, you're protecting yourself from any sort of personal liability that might arise from the operation of the business. So instead of you, the individual, getting sued and having your assets attacked, um, your business entity would get sued and have those assets attacked. Still not great, but much better than you personally being um, implicated. And and secondly, what you're doing is you're organizing this business entity in such a way as to kind of maximally provide um, tax benefits and tax breaks and and just kind of separate yourself from the tax implications as as best as possible. And, you know, depending on what you do, um, that that would mean different things. Um, As far as which business entity to choose, there are different things you want to think about. Um, the three main business entities, and two of them are really one and the same, as we'll see, but there is the limited liability company, which is the LLC. There is the corporation, the C-Corp. Um, and then there is the derivative of the C-Corp, which is the S-Corp. And the S-Corp really is just the C-Corp, but it's filed as a separate um it's filed separately so that you obtain special tax rights. So, so what does that mean? Okay, an LLC is a tax pass-through entity, which means that the the company only gets taxed um, not at the level of the company, but once the money kind of moves down to the owner. A C corp, on the other hand, is double taxed, which means it gets taxed both at the level of the company and then at the level of the owner company. What you're doing with an S corp is you're telling the IRS that You want the same pass-through tax benefits of the S-Corp, but you still want it to be an actual corporation. Remember, an LLC is not a corporation, it's just a company. And the main difference between these corporations and companies is kind of the robustness with which um, they can entertain investment opportunities. C-Corps and S-Corps, for example, have stocks. You don't really think about LLCs as having stocks. You have equity. You have percentages in LLCs, but there are no stock options. Um, And in C-Corps in particular, you can have kind of a more varied type of stock structure. You can have common stock, you can have preferred stock. Um, It it makes it much more attractive to investors. And indeed, all startups that are looking to raise capital from venture capitalist firms, um, you know, they could really only be a C-Corp. S-Corps don't have that kind of division within um, allowing for different types of stocks. They have a different Um, They have a very limited number of investors. Um, So, you know, there's a lot to think about, obviously. Basically, you need to ask yourself, who's going to be my investor? Do I want an investor? How much do I want them to invest? How sophisticated are they? Do they want different types of voting rights? You know, so depending on how you think about these things, um, you'll likely end up with a different type of business entity. 
All right. Now, it's always a good idea to have a good tax planning CPA as well that helps you make these decisions. But I think I learned a while back that, well, obviously, limited liability companies can be set up as a partnership. But if it's a single person LLC, then I think I learned that they're subject to self-employment tax, which is pretty high in most states. Does that ring a bell with you? Every state is different in that respect. Yeah. Um, yeah, as you said, this is definitely something that you should speak to your CPA about and kind of how to structure it to maximize um, your own tax incentives. Back in the day when I owned restaurants, we owned uh, the real estate. And our attorney advised at that time that we set up a separate company from, you know, to separate the operating company from the real estate company. Therefore, if we were ever sued, the owner of the property had all of the assets, you know, the equipment, the furniture, the fixtures, and the operating company simply paid rent to that. Um, is that still a good idea today? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, ultimately, again, the, the name of the game here is protect yourself at all times. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how do you divide official ownership of assets such that if one were to be attacked, it doesn't compromise your entire enterprise? Um, I, I think that's a very good strategy, and certainly depending on how um, on how intertwined the two businesses are, that may be more or less practical. Um, you know, the court system, they're not idiots, you know. But but nevertheless, you know, you want to do things to, to, to minimize the damage. So I think that is a very sensible idea. Okay. What about, um, we were exploring the purchase of getting back in the business and buying a restaurant that already has uh, two separate companies. And obviously we would be forming our own companies here. Does it ever make sense uh, to have one as a subchapter S and one as an LLC? I mean, I think our CPA recommended that and I need to clarify that with him, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on that question. I'm not so sure. I mean, that sounds like a very specific tax strategy that your CPA had in plan. So it would be difficult for me to comment on that. Uh, In general, like I said, you want to select the business entity according to how that business is going to be run. So S-Corps, for example, like I said, they can only have a limited number of investors. Large restaurants, large conglomerations, they need a robust investment plan in place with potentially a lot of diversified investors. Um, in that case, an escort probably would not be a good option. Um, if you're a restaurant that's only going to have one partner, you're not looking to raise capital, everything is going to be done kind of small locally, maybe it makes sense to go with an LLC, which is a much simpler and cheaper um, enterprise to set up. Again, one, one thing also to notice, which is interesting, and this is where every state really is different, in the state of New York, where my practice is, um, New York has a publishing requirement, which is which is to say that after you set up your LLC, you have to, for a period of, I think, six consecutive weeks, within the first six months of the LLC being, pub- uh, being authorized by the state, you have to publish the formation of your LLC. And it can be very expensive. They basically tell you which newspapers, um, according to your county, are acceptable for you to publish in. Um, but, the, but this can add on quite a bit of money, potentially several thousand dollars. This is something that you want to think about as um, you determine what business entity is right for you and how much money you can allocate to the formation costs. Okay, that all makes perfect sense. 
Why don't we move on now into brand protection of restaurants and trademarks? Uh, what's your best advice for, you know, I mean, there's certain elements that are protectable in restaurants versus ones less so. So why don't you explain? Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, the first thing to understand is that when you're running a business, a restaurant, it's true that you have a physical space and you're selling food, of course, but ultimately what you're doing is you're building a brand. And that's what you're selling. I mean, when people think of KFC, they may very well think of the chicken, but, you know, they think of Colonel Sanders. They think of that iconic logo. Um, they're purchasing an idea. And that is kind of the crux of trademark law. Trademarks are source identifiers. When you see a name, a logo, a slogan, a graphic, a motion, even a sound, and it's been used a sufficient amount with a certain set of goods or services mm -hmm. come to identify that brand identifier, the logo name, slogan, whatever with those goods and services. So that that is kind of what trademark law is all about. We're protecting the source identifier. Um, so as a restaurant, when you're thinking about how to start your own branding assets, how to design them, how to create them. Um, the first thing I tell my clients is to just think about what appeals to you. You know, don't pick something that you think sounds cool or clever. You know, pick a branding um, strategy that contains branding assets, the name, the, the logo that you really love, that you're proud of, that you get excited about. And I think that really helps kind of with the development of the fuller branding narrative, um, and, and it helps you stay on target. Okay, that's a very good answer there. Let me ask you, let me say... There's a national chain, and I'm just going to make this up, but say a national chain has been doing business for decades under the name John's Restaurant, perhaps. And my name is John, and I want to open a restaurant, and I want to call it John's Restaurant. Can they get, send me a cease and desist letter and say, no, you can't call your place John's Restaurant, even if my name really is John? How does that work? Yeah, it depends. So the first thing that you'd want to see is have they registered their trademark Mm -hmm. um, in the United States Patent and Trademark Office. If they have, that would be a slam dunk case for why you could not open John's Restaurant. You know, I, I would be skeptical as to whether or not prima facie John's re Restaurant is trademarkable. It's not very distinct. Even if it was, right. it would be a weak trademark. But yeah. nevertheless, if it's a nationally recognized brand that's been around for decades, um, they might have picked up what's called secondary meaning, um, or acquired distinctiveness, which is this doctrine in trademark law, which is that even though a trademark may superficially not be a trademark or not a strong trademark, just by virtue of the fact that it has acquired a certain prestige in the public eye and it's become readily identifiable with a certain set of goods or services, um, then suddenly that mark, which is initially a weak mark, it, it emerges into a much stronger mark. So if you're starting out a restaurant from scratch and you see that another restaurant already has this name, my advice would be pick a new name. Okay, good enough. What other elements can you protect when we're talking about all the different things that go into a restaurant if you want yeah. to keep that intellectual property and trade secrets? Well, so one of the most fascinating parts of, um, I suppose, what would fall under this broader doctrine of trademark law is this doctrine of trade dress. So if you think about Starbucks, I, I find this still fascinating. I, you know, I, I'm never, I never cease to be amazed by this. But of course, whenever you go into a Starbucks, irrespective of what country you're in, 
Um, every Starbucks looks the same. They all have the same wood paneling, the same leather chairs. It's all in the same formation. The green um, paint on the walls, it all looks the same. Um, and, and of course, that is by design and not by accident. Sure. What, Starbucks wants, what Starbucks wants you to do is, is to walk into their coffee shop and understand immediately that you're in a Starbucks. And trademark law, through this sub-doctrine of, of trade dress, actually awards protections to Starbucks so that no other coffee shop can come along and replicate this kind of Starbucks store experience in their own restaurant, their own coffee shop. Um, so I, I think this is just a really clever thing for, for restaurants to be thinking about, especially those that plan on opening multiple stores in multiple places. You know, what kind of brand narrative can you think of, can you create, and how can that kind of manifest itself across the physical space of your restaurant and location itself? That's a powerful idea, Abe. So let's walk through that process. Let's just use the Starbucks example in a new restaurant that hopes to expand, maybe even franchise, and you want that consistency. How do you protect that? Is it, are you taking photographs of the style, the design to, a, to establish what the trade dress is? Is it documented in writing? You know, we use this particular color and we use this combination of wood and paneling and metal. And I mean, how do you identify that and document it? You know, it's obviously a challenging thing because many of these things are, are difficult to articulate by, by their very nature, right? Like, you know, right. How, how do you designate that two leather chairs sit um, abutting a wooden plank on the right-hand side of the store? You know, how, do, how does that get documented, like you said? Right. So it, it is a challenge. You know, I, I think one important thing to think about without getting too deep into the weeds here is that what the legal system in general cares about is, is time and consistency. So, you know, ultimately, you know, you would want to be able to prove that we have been doing this thing, X, Y, Z, for a certain period of time, and we've been doing it consistently, and it's emerged into some kind of public awareness somehow. Um, but yeah, I mean, trade dress for stores is not as readily um, protectable kind of in, in a strict uh, formal sense in the same way that protecting, for example, a logo or, you know, trade dress, which is this doctrine that I talked about before. It, it, it also applies to labels, to packaging, kind of this overall commercial impression. I mean, that, that is what trademark law is about. Tying commercial impressions of things, symbols with products. And if you can prove that such a connection exists, then you obtain trademark rights. All right. What about recipes? Are those protectable? Recipes, unfortunately, are very challenging to protect. What you can do, um, so just to back up for a moment, it's important to understand that there are different types of intellectual property. There are three main types. Trademarks, which we just talked about extensively. Source identifiers, names, logos, slogans, motion, sounds, that when paired with a good or service, um, readily make the consumer understand the source of that good or service. Then a second classification of intellectual property is patent law. So if you're to come up with a new tire, um, it, it's an invention. It's a way of formulating um, on paper an idea, a new product, um, so on and so forth, a process in some instances. Um, and then lastly, 
um, we have copyrights, which is a really interesting feature of intellectual property law. Copyrights protect um, songs, musical compositions, movies, written literary works, you know, creations of the mind that don't necessarily fall strictly under the trademark feature of intellectual property law. You know, they're not necessarily source identifiers, um, although in certain instances, copyrights and trademarks can be, um, but, you know, they're longer works. Um, and so a, a recipe would be a natural type of thing that, that copyright law would protect. Um, the problem is that with all things intellectual property, the thing that you want to own really does have has to be novel in a certain way. It has to be novel, has to be non-obvious. It has to be a new contribution that it would be fair for the government to take away the right from someone else to do that thing just so you can have it. So, you know, and, and that really is the fundamental principle of IP law. Are you doing something so unique and novel that you uniquely came up with this thing such that no one else should be able to use it. So, you know, you can imagine the recipes, um, you know, it wouldn't be fair if you came up with a new fried chicken recipe and said, ah, no one else can use it. Okay. So, so what can be done? Um, you can't get a copyright on the use of the recipe, but you might very well be able to get a copyright on the unique composition of the recipe. So if you are a Game of Thrones enthusiast, although this is actually a bad example because maybe the George Martin would have the right to this somehow. But, you know, imagine if you came up with a new fantastical story and you created the whole world of mystical creatures or, you know, whatever it may be. And, um, and along with that world creation, you developed a cookbook and you had all these recipes. Mm -hmm. So what you could gain the copyright on is kind of your unique articulation of those recipes vis-a-vis -vis your larger fantastical narrative of supernatural, whatever. But, you know, you wouldn't necessarily be able to stop someone um, from simply creating that dish that is the culmination of the baking of all the goods in that recipe. So there, there's a bit of a subtle difference there. Um, you know, typically what companies do is they avail themselves of trade secret law, which is not something that you submit to the government, but it's a process by which you go about protecting um, your recipe such that other people don't have access to it. And, you know, there are different ways in the material world to do that. Like Coca-Cola, they lock up their recipe in a vault, literally, um, in order to gain trade secret rights. And they obviously have all the power and legal firepower behind them to protect anything because exactly. it's very hard to sue Coca-Cola. But we're talking about small independent operators that may have grandma's secret pasta sauce that goes back generation after generation. But you might want to try to protect that, but it's very difficult to do on that level. Right. So what I would suggest in those instances is that... Um, you know, again, you should avail yourself of this trade secret law um, doctrine. So what do you do? You don't have copies of your recipe lying around. You don't tell other people who don't need to know what the recipe is, what that recipe is. You have one copy of it. You lock it up in a vault um, under lock and key. You make sure all the non-disclosure agreements that you have your employees sign um, recognize that they're going to come in contact with things that they absolutely cannot disclose. Um, and, you know, you, you just take common sense measures to make sure that no one else can access your recipe. And then, bam, suddenly you have trade secret rights. 
Yeah, that brings up another interesting point, the whole non-disclosure, because certain employees in restaurants do come up against and work with sensitive information on a daily basis that you don't want your competitors capturing. But it's very challenging to legally enforce that, isn't it? When, I mean, these people don't have a lot of assets to protect and you're not about to spend a lot of money suing them because they shared those trade secrets. I mean, it's kind of a catch-22, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one one of the challenges in general with the law is that it only works, um, you know, up to the point of the legal repercussions actually harming someone. A lot of times people don't have, like you said, any financial assets um, that that they're worried about losing, unfortunately. Um, So, you know, what you want to do is just be really selective about who it is that you're telling about your secret sauce. You know, some companies are known for only telling one employee half the recipe, telling another employee the other half of the recipe. And, you know, so that one person alone couldn't go in and steal the recipe. So, you know, you want to just do whatever you can to protect yourself um, from having to use any sort of legal recourse to get back what you might not be able to ever get back. Fair enough. Let me ask you about, uh, we're going to go in a different direction yet again, and we're going to talk about, you know, a lot of companies run into trouble, um, you know, with the, with the authorities and the federal government about employees versus what constitutes an independent contractor and how you differentiate the two and how you document, you know, to make sure that you've got your backup on what is an independent contractor versus a true employee. Can you clarify? Yeah, I think that this is actually... I- an unbelievably fascinating area of the law. One of the reasons why it's so interesting is that, one, there is no clear-cut way of knowing who's an employee and who's an independent contractor. And second of all, not every state uses the same system of criteria to make that determination. Uh, but, but just to back up for a moment, you know, why is this so important? Because employers have duties to employees that the they do not have to independent contractors. And similarly, they have tax reporting duties and tax reporting um, restrictions vis-a-vis employees that they don't have to independent contractors. And typically, employee employers find that it's to their benefit to classify um, to classify workers as independent contractors rather than employees because you know it'll make their lives easier, cheaper. Um, But the reality is that simply choosing to designate a worker as an employee or an independent contractor, that's not really what it's about. Um, The the question boils down to, and the crux of this question is one of control. And there's financial control, and then there's managerial control. Financial control asks, um, can the worker go and work for somebody else? Are they only getting paid by the employer? So, you know, and, and it makes a lot of sense if you think about it. If the, if the worker is only, only stream of income is from the employee, that's probably an employee, not an independent contractor. Um, and, and, you know, as far as managerial control, um, how much control over the decision making of what the, empl- what the worker does is up to the employer. Um, where does the worker do his work? Does he come on site to the employer's business? Is he doing it from home? Is he using the work, the employer's um, materials? Is he using the employer's equipment? What happens if he doesn't quite follow the employer's instructions? How much leeway is there? So, you know, ultimately, the more control that the employer has over the employee, um, the more likely the worker will be an employee rather than an independent contractor. 
Okay, so let's focus on the independence for a moment. And let me ask you what types of backup you should have as a restaurant owner to protect yourself. And another thing comes to mind, what about liability? What if an independent contractor gets hurt performing the work for the restaurant company, uh, but they don't have their own insurance? Should that be a requirement that you are, you know, you are insured before you even hire some of these people? Yeah. So, um, well, again, a couple things to think about. Um, the, the most important thing is for employers to just kind of be honest. Okay. You know what your relationship is with this worker. You know, are they calling you? Are they reporting every day at 830? Are they leaving every day at six? Um, do you have kind of the ability to call them up on the phone and yell at them without fear of them just, you know, quitting your little job and going to work for another client. So, you know, just be honest with yourself. And and I think a lot of times business owners are so wrapped up in figuring out how they can outmaneuver um, the the text of the law to kind of satisfy their own objective that they lose sight of the fact that, you know, the courts, the judges, these people are not idiots. You know, they know what you're doing. So if, if after taking an honest assessment and you realize that the way that you relate to this worker is really as an employee um, rather than an independent contractor, you need to label them as, as an employee. Um, as far as liability goes, um, this is certainly not a, a simple discussion. And really, all, all of these things really come down to, to the facts of, of whatever particular case. But, you know, just as a general matter... Um, it's important to recognize that when this worker is doing your bidding and they're doing it during the course of the period of time that they're supposed to be doing it, when you hire them to do this thing, then, you know, they, they really become an agent of your business. So if they go injure somebody else, then that agency status kind of skirts up the ladder to you at, sitting at the top sending that, that agent, that emissary on your behalf, and suddenly you, the business owner, you might very well be liable mm-hmm. um, for whatever happened um, due to, let's say, the negligence of that agent. Mm-hmm. Um, a- as far as insurance issues go, again, you know, the, the mantra here that business owners should always be thinking about is protect yourself at all times. So, you know, what do you need to do to protect yourself at all times? Um, you know, restaurants have different types of uh, let's say more idiosyncratic insurance needs because they're dealing with food, they're dealing with fire in, in the kitchen, they're dealing with hot stuff, customers getting in contact with hot stuff. Um, so, you know, what exactly you need as, as, a, as a restaurateur in order to protect yourself from a liability point of view, um, you know, I'll, I'll leave that as an open question. But, you know, you want to be doing whatever you can to maximize your protections and skimping out on insurance, I think, is one of the the worst things for a restaurant thing to do. Absolutely. And there's so many types of insurances. First of all, workers' compensation is required and mandatory, and that's not inexpensive. You need general liability insurance. But a lot of, you know, restaurants that serve alcohol need a whole liquor liability policy. Yep. And then there are umbrella policies that cover the whole thing to give you added protection. So it does get expensive, but it's something you definitely can't skirt, like you say. No, it's the cost of doing If you want to open up a restaurant, get ready to spend a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, 
the potential for liability is just ever present and around the next corner. I know when I was in the business, you know, we had several, uh, you know, legal issues that we had to have settled. And sometimes you can settle these out of court and sometimes you can't. But in any event, it definitely gets expensive. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Let me talk. Do you, do you, um, advise restaurants when they're getting into lease situations? Do you look over lease agreements and that sort of thing? I don't. Typically that is, um, it falls more under the domain of, of real estate law. Right. It's not an area of law that I practice. Okay. It's certainly entirely state dependent. Um, but, you know, I, I have some general familiarity with it. One of the things I always tell clients to think about, I think perhaps the most important thing is to think about what type of um, time constraints are on the lease. And especially when you're leasing commercial spaces where it gets expensive, landlords have very specific requirements um, about how long you have to be on the lease, what sort of uh, capacities they expect you to fill. So, you know, this is especially true, like if someone wanted to, group of people wanted to get together and rent out a mall, you know, they have certain requirements about how many stores actually have to be in there, for example. It's very interesting. Um, but yeah, no, th- this isn't an area of law that, that I practice. All right. Well, I, I appreciate your honest answer there. You're in New York City, Abe, and obviously there are a tremendous amount of restaurants. And it seems like a trend is happening in your city about no tipping policies, which can be controversial. I know I've spoken to lots of restaurants across the country, and they're a little hesitant about how the end effect would be on the consumer and what perception would be, and if this would actually work. Are you getting any news from the street on how New York City restaurants are coping with this and if it's actually working? You know, very recently I was at a restaurant, a restaurant which I frequent quite fairly regularly, let's say at least twice a month um, in in Manhattan, in the Flatiron District. And I went there with a couple clients, actually. You know, we got there... uh, we got there, we sat down, we looked at the menus, and we noticed that everything on the menu was about 8 to $12 more expensive. So, you know, the, the waiter came over and we said, wow, I guess uh, you must be really popular. Or the, the cost of food has gone up. You know, what's going on? It looks a little more expensive. Yeah. And he said with a frown, there's a no tipping policy. So at the end, you'll probably end up paying the exact same amount anyways. And he was obviously disturbed by this policy. Um, And, and frankly, I was surprised by it. I mean, to me, it's restrictive on both the, it's restrictive on both the customer and also on the waiter because the customer says, yeah, I guess at the end, I'm not paying a tip. And meanwhile, I'm, paying more right now. It's basically a forced tax is, is what it is. Um, and, and as a customer, you know, you no longer have the flexibility to reward excellent service and to demerit service that you think was subpar. Um, and from a waiter's point of view, you know, hopefully these waiters are all doing the best they can to provide excellent service. And this entirely disincentivizes um, that sort of of work ethic. I mean, you know, especially in a place like New York, where people are are giving 50% tips on $200 meals. Um, So, you know, I'm skeptical of the longevity of of this new strategy. I don't frankly find it to be very fair. Um, But, you know, we'll see how it works out. The market will decide ultimately. 
Yeah, I mean, it's one of those leap of faith decisions that could end up harming your business if you tried to go down that road. And who knows what what your particular customers, you know, what they're going to feel about this and what their ideas will be. Um, I get the sense, and maybe I'm wrong, Abe, you didn't mention this, but you, you immediately noticed the prices were much higher on this particular menu. Did the restaurant not do a, a good job in pointing out on the menu that it was a no tipping policy or did they do that? They did not. Wow. They did not, yeah. I'm t- the, the whole thing I, I found to be profoundly um, hmm. sketchy, frankly. I, I didn't like it. Um, and, you know, you're wondering why everything is so much more expensive. Had I not kind of made a, a joke to, to the waiter, I wouldn't have known. And also, who knows at the end of the meal if someplace at the bottom of the check, it would have said, you know, tip included or, but, you know, how many people know that? Because it also had a line that said, you know, additional tip. So if you're not kind of following the plot, you might just think that it's a normal tipping, uh, you know, schedule and, and give your 20%, even though you already gave your 20% on the initial increase on, on the price of the food item. So I, I really, it really left a bad taste in my mouth. No, no pun intended. Yeah. No, no, no. I can totally see that. That's why I asked that question. It is a very controversial issue right now. And uh, I know, uh, I think Union Square Hospitality and Danny Meyer was the the highest profile proponent of trying this. And I haven't followed if if, if it's been working out for that restaurant group or not, but it's clearly an issue that's sweeping the country. Some restaurants are trying it and some aren't. And you've just given us a really good example of, you know, a bad customer experience where it was confusing. Uh, You know, clearly the staff were not happy about the policy. And this certainly isn't a great way to brand a restaurant where you can get business coming from it. Right. No, it just seems entirely cynical. I mean, are they worried about patrons not tipping appropriately? Mm-hmm. Are they worried about perhaps some waiters working harder than others? And so they just want to provide a uniform experience by ensuring that all waiters get the same amount of money at the end. It's not really entirely clear to me who this serves and why, but it feels cynical and it doesn't engender a lot of trust and faith in the establishment. Well, one another challenge that a vast majority of restaurants have, Abe, is uh, separating, you know, the front of the house from the back of the house. And an argument can be made for, you know, the chefs are working under, you know, harder working conditions, hot kitchens, hot stoves, longer hours, and the service staff come in, they work fewer hours, and they make far more money. And some restaurants have to sort of balance it out. And they've tried tip pools, and they've tried sharing the tips, but the servers never want to share with the back of the house and all that. And this may be one way where if you increase the price of everything and then you somehow fairly, equitably transfer the wealth to everyone who provides the experience to the customer, I mean, maybe that's part of it, but. Yeah, well, I I think it depends on how, it depends on your view of kind of the marketplace in general. Mm -hmm. Does the market always correct itself such that people ultimately get what they deserve or or doesn't it? Right, Um, right. So uh, this really is kind of a micro um, organism of, of that larger economic philosophy, really. You know, if you think, for example, that I think in New York, this is especially true. I mean, if you go to some of these incredible restaurants, like, you know, I, my office is in the financial district. We have some incredible restaurants there. Um, and I have no doubt that the chefs are getting paid handsomely. Um, now, simultaneously, I would imagine that the busboys are probably not making that much money. And the yeah, sous chef yeah. and some of the lower level chefs who are working further down the assembly line, uh, as you will, 
are not making that much money. But you might argue, you know what, they're just paying their dues. And once they become more experienced, then they will get paid as they should. So, it, you know, it just depends on how you kind of view this thing and whether or not there should be structured, regimented systems in place to, um, to kind of better regulate price outcomes, you know, vis-a-vis equity, whatever that means. Okay, fair enough. We've covered a lot of different issues. Uh, we've covered intellectual property. We've covered some startup form of organization ideas. We talked about, uh, obviously, the employee versus the independent contractors and several other ideas as well. Is there anything we've missed that, uh, that you've also specialized in where you've helped clients that, that you'd like to talk about? Um, yeah, well, you know, one thing that's true of all companies, and, you know, I work with a lot of startups, so... This is, I think, chiefly important for these smaller businesses where entrepreneurs are bootstrapping it. But, you know, there is this inclination to pick a co-founder that you know, somebody that you like, somebody that's in your immediate friendship circle. Um, And and invariably, this turns out to be a poor decision. (laughs) So, you know, it's hard to blame a founder for wanting to to, to select a a kind of a familiar colleague, whether or not that's a friend or someone that you've just been working with for a while. But you know, it's a bad selection criteria. You, you want to be picking someone that one has a set of skills that you do not have. In other words, you don't want two people who are good at doing the exact same thing. Pick a co-founder who's really good at something that you're terrible at or that you hate doing. So maybe you're a brilliant chef and you really know how to kind of build a restaurant aesthetically to achieve whatever cultivated look and feel that you want, but um, you're horrible at marketing. You hate meeting with investors and and pitching to, to raise capital. You're not good with the finance side. So, you know, maybe you need somebody who's really good at Excel, who's extroverted, who kind of has their hands um, you know, what, what from working in the venture capitalist world and, you know, someone who can do something that you really can't do. So I, I think that's a really good tip for, for people starting out who need a co-founder. Um, and second of all, make sure everything is in writing. You know, there's such a temptation to think, ah, he's a good friend of mine. We'll work it out or let's worry about that later. Sure. That's a disaster waiting to happen. Have the difficult discussions in advance and make sure to keep meticulous record of all of the decisions that have been made um, from day one, codified in some sort of operating agreement. So who is responsible for what and how much time and all that sort of thing? And, and you know, there's so many infinite ideas and, and things totally. that need to be documented here. You know, two partners start off with the best of intentions and then something unexpected happens and someone's putting in less time now. They're not as effective as they once were. It's hard to document those individual items, but it really matters, right? When it comes right down to it. And, you know, one way to account for that, just as you said, you know, how do you foresee all of the infinite possibilities of what can go wrong? Um, So, you know, what founders do typically um, is they institute what's called a vesting schedule of their equity. So, you know, two founders get together, each partner owns a certain amount of equity in the company, however it's decided. But just because they own that equity, they only owe it kind of in in the cloud. Um, And that equity vests over time, which is to say that it's theirs in in theory, but only one certain, um, what is typically the case, temporal or or time-based check marks have been met. So like the most typical vesting schedule is what's called a four-year, one-year cliff vesting schedule, which means that after the first year, 
25% of that co-founder stock vests or becomes theirs. And then over the course of the next three years, the rest of that 75%, 25% per year vests. But until the end of the four years, that founder doesn't own all of the stock, which means that if something goes wrong, like you said, um, and the relationship terminates before the end of right. the vesting period, then, you know, he doesn't own everything and, and the company can buy it back. So that incentivizes both work, both co-founders to, to keep working hard and working, um, you know, towards their goal so that at least they'll vest all of their equity at the, at the end of the, the four years. Smart advice. I've been in partnerships before. Some have worked well. Some have not worked out so well. <laughs> exactly. And that's common. Abe, how can uh, our listeners find you if they want to reach out for advice or perhaps hire you? Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, of course, they can just check out our website, www.conlg.com. Um, and, you know, I'm also really active on Instagram. The handle is just at conlg, C-O-H-N-L-G. Um, you know, please feel free to, to shoot us a message through our contact form, send us an email. Um, you know, we, we really want to connect and, and help you guys, all the listeners, um, and I just want to say, this really was a pleasure connecting with the, this audience. I love the food industry. I love the restaurant industry. Um, and it's so important that we continue to foster this community environment where, you know, we, we can look to each other for advice, tips, help, um, and, you know, just a general sense of, of community that I think is really unique to the food industry. Well, that's clearly what we're about. We're just helping uh, operators and managers run stronger, more profitable, and more successful operations. And you clearly added quite a bit to uh, to our podcast repertoire, Abe. So I'm really glad you were a guest. We covered a lot of very important topics for restaurant owners, and you gave us some really great advice. So thanks for appearing on the show. Great. Thank you very much. This was a pleasure. It's my pleasure entirely. We'll talk to you again. That was the Restaurant Rockstars podcast, folks, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks, guys, for tuning into this episode. I think that was really powerful and valuable advice from a, an attorney that specializes in the restaurant industry. You know, when I ran restaurants and, you know, I should say when I ran brands that were restaurants, I often turned to the professional advice of my attorney. You know, he was a valued partner of my team, and there were so many times when I just didn't have the answers to things that certainly that advice, you know, got me through some pretty difficult decisions as well as some unpleasant situations as well. Because the unexpected in restaurants really is around the next corner. This is a litigious society, and you really have to protect yourself any way you can. So listening to Abe's advice today, I think, was time well spent. I also want to let you know that we have a brand new website at www.restaurantrockstars.com. We now focus on one simple product, one single product that will help you with your pain points and the challenges of running your, your restaurant, no matter what they are. If you're uncomfortable with numbers, we have a complete financial system that teaches you those numbers and makes it super simple so that you know at a critical glance every week what your inventory is, what your food and beverage and labor costs are, your daily break-even all these critical things. We actually teach you this information in a very simple and, and productive way. We also include our Profit Maximizer video that gives you three ways to increase profits, immediately actionable ways to increase profits in your restaurant. The next level provides staff training to the financial system. So I created this program so long ago that was so, you know, incredibly important to the 
guest service experiences that my staff delivered to the customer. And it was also proven to double check averages. We call that sales stars. So it's, again, proven to give your guests great experiences and also to train your staff to recognize opportunities, educate, inform, and entertain your customers, which includes, you know, the salesmanship piece, which is missing in so many restaurants. And then finally, the platinum level is everything you need to know if you're just starting your first restaurant, what you need to do to open the doors to that first restaurant, and I mean everything, in addition to maximizing profits and putting systems in place across the restaurant to maximize your efficiencies and your profits. So even if you've been a veteran or you've been in the business for a while, the Academy Platinum Level will help you take things to the next level. We really appreciate you listening, and if you like what you're hearing, two things, please. Why don't you drop me a line, Roger, R-O-G-E-R, at restaurantrockstars.com. If you'd think of a topic or a special guest that you'd like me to reach out to to interview, I'm happy to take your suggestions. And also, we'd appreciate it if you leave us a review on iTunes, which will help other managers and owners of restaurants find us. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. For lots of great resources, head over to restaurantrockstars.com. See you next time.